0: My guest today is Sheila Ngo Pham, a writer, editor, producer, and scholar working across radio, print, online, and film. Sheila is based in Sydney, Australia, and over the time that we've known each other, Sheila's been really helpful in helping me contact guests all over Australia. She writes for a wide range of publications and previously held digital and editorial roles at the ABC. I value her openness and willingness to approach many different subjects inside and outside of the Vietnamese culture. Please join us today as we catch up with the current work that Sheila is doing in her hometown. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Wynn. Being part of a culture of nearly a 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of.
1: Hey, I'm Sheila Ngoc Pham. I'm a writer, producer, and I'm also the curator of an exhibition that is currently showing at the Fairfield City Museum and Gallery, cordman, which focuses on Vietnamese and Vietnamese Chinese uh, writers and artists um, exploring, I guess, diasporic experience um, here in Sydney.
0: Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it's great to be back. Yeah, because I spoke to, was it last year? Or maybe the year before even? So, yeah, okay, it's,
0: it, it, it's been probably over a year. It's when you covered uh, for The Guardian the uh the rock um
1: Phung Tham yeah. Phung tam.
0: Phung Tham Phung Tham is a singer from Vietnam yes Phung Tham and uh that's when we reached out and we had a conversation and it was uh it was awesome so now how did you um come into this project of curating uh this museum um exhibition
1: yeah so I'm you know I do a lot of different things and a lot focused on you know the Vietnamese experience in different ways um, I've only ever curated one other exhibition. Um, and that's another interesting story, actually, which I'm speaking about um, later this month in, in Sydney at the State Library. Um, this amazing collection of um Hall paintings that the library holds that two Australians collected in the 50s. Um, anyway, I curated an exhibition. Um, and actually, I was just thinking about it today because that exhibition ran just before COVID hit. It pretty much started December 2019, and then it um, ended like mid-March 2020 when the whole world changed. Um, But that was my first experience with curating an exhibition. So that was just a small one um, featuring like this, um, you know, basically vintage folk art from the 50s from Vietnam. And then so, um, you know, fast forward, I ended up doing some work with the Fairfield City Museum and Gallery, which is a small suburban museum. And it's basically located in pretty much like the heartland of the Vietnamese community here in Sydney, um, in Southwest Sydney. and. I did some work with them in, in a previous exhibition where they got me on board with a bunch of other writers and we were responding to museum objects. And one of the obvious things that came out of that project was that um, even though the museum is located in the Vietnamese neighborhood, basically, or or and other groups as well, but let's say Vietnamese is the main group. Um, they didn't really have any Vietnamese objects in their collection, like nothing. Literally, there's one bowl of fur, like the you know the plastic one, the the the, the one that's like you know you probably say in America, the one that's kind of got that red pattern that kind of looks Chinese. Yeah. So there's one there's one tokenistic um, plastic bowl that someone donated to the museum in the 90s or something. Um, but yeah, so that was one of the gaps in the collection. Um, and so there was a curator who was who was working there, and she's on she's she, she had a baby, so she's not um, there at this stage, but she she'll come back. And she's actually Dutch and she did some research into the museum's archives, you know, and the museum's been going, I think it was officially established maybe in the 80s um, by basically the white Australians who were living in the neighbourhood and they wanted to start up a museum. And then she realised that in the last 40 years, basically, there just had never been an exhibition about the Vietnamese experience in in the area. So it was like this huge gap. And because, um, you know, she'd gone to know me through this other exhibition where, you know, I was writing about some of the objects and that, And then she knew that I had like um, a lot of knowledge about, you know, Vietnamese diaspora. She asked me to come on board, like to, you know, do this exhibition. So I I have to give credit to her. It was actually her instigating this and her doing research into the museum's archives and just realizing that there just had never been uh, just like a exhibition, um, which seems really like a huge gap, obviously.
0: Let's take it a few steps back. How the hell do you know how to curate a museum? How do you understand and where did you learn how to curate an exhibition? Because I know you as a writer, uh, you write very well and you get really deep into a subject. I only imagine that it's probably close and similar to putting together an exhibition, but that sounds to me like it's a whole different level of, of training professionally.
1: Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a professionally trained curator, but I would say that I've probably been to a lot of exhibitions. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's like with a lot of these things. I don't think you need a degree personally. I mean, maybe I don't want to like, um, devalue degrees (laughs) in studies because obviously there's a lot of theory behind a lot of this. But I mean, I guess it's the same with writing. I don't have a writing degree, but I I read a lot. You know, I, I do, I I do a lot of things just from watching, right? and, And learning. Like, I'm about to write a play and that's, you know, I don't have a degree in writing a play, but I have watched a lot of plays. So, you know, you, you I think you develop instincts. And so with exhibitions, I mean, I've probably seen, I don't know, like 100 exhibitions at least in my life, right? You know, over the years, over like 20 something years, I've been to heaps of museums, heaps of galleries. And I guess it takes a long time though. Like at the beginning, you're kind of just in awe of the whole thing. You're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. But then as you get become a bit more discerning and you kind of develop your own taste, now you realize that not all exhibitions are necessarily that amazing sometimes there's points that are not you know that strong or things you know maybe artworks you don't really like but that's okay too I think that's f- totally fine to not love every bit of an exhibition but it is cool when you go to an exhibition and you just love it and you're like oh I love that exhibition so um yes yeah, so I guess I approach the whole thing kind of instinctually like I I don't think of myself as being some kind of this is my career I don't think I have a career I just have lots of different things that I do all the time you know and I'm interested in stories right so this is the and and the Vietnamese thing, I'll always have to come back to that. It's going to be a lifelong project, just like it is for you, right? Like it's, it's so much like a part of our own identity and foundation. Yeah. And we also see there's a need for people like us to help bring these stories to life.
0: You, you know, recently I've been listening to uh, another podcast, Mark Maron. He interviews so many people and he's been doing it one of the longest in the U.S. And he's a comedian and he talks about like the first 300 episodes that he did was really for himself. And to navigate, so I am asking. I and I realize I do that. I, I do that a lot. I ask questions based on uh, what I kind of want to know in the directing of my life. Uh, so the question that I have for you as a curator is: it's, it's so reflective of my own thinking. Is how do you know who to pick? How do? What is your process to keep? Uh, this person in and it's very inclusive or exclusive right this idea of curating
1: oh totally i mean you, and you'd have the same dilemma i mean okay so here's a, here's a catalog so it's um, and uh yeah so it's running to middle of october so if people are in sydney like you know please check it out look i mean i, I want to be honest though it's not like it was just me doing this like and i think that's important to acknowledge it's not just my vision i mean obviously i brought a lot into this and you know i came up with the title i came up with pretty much most of the artists but not all the artists because the museum itself it has even though it has never had an exhibition like this over the years it has developed relationships with local vietnamese artists so um and not to, and i would want to qualify vietnamese chinese as well so i'll talk about that a bit more because i think that that's something that i really wanted to emphasize um that in the vietnamese diaspora there are a lot of viet chinese basically and we don't talk about that enough and i feel like we need to make that really clear Um, Yeah, so then it really was a collaboration between me and the museum. Um, And I also, you know, from the very outset, I just knew that you can't include every single person. So there are certainly some Vietnamese artists that I haven't included in the exhibition. I mean, it's only a small space as well. So, yeah. And actually, I should explain. It's a very small museum, by the way. So curating it wasn't like me curating like a major art institution or something. It's just a small museum. But in the end, we were able to include 17 writers and artists. Um, and I really was emphasizing this mixture of more established older artists with, you know, people who are like young and in their 20s. Um, and, and some of the works are older works that I already knew of or like the artists told me about. or And some of the works are just brand new commissioned by the museum. And I also thought that was important because I've been to a lot of exhibitions where the emphasis is on, you know, the new, like, you know, the latest works. Everything is brand new, young artists. I, I understand that excitement, but I was trying to tell a different story here which is about that you know we've now been in this area um, and I guess in Australia for like basically over 40 years and I wanted the works in a way to reflect that kind of story so and I also wanted to acknowledge that even though this is the first um, exhibition in this museum that in another exhibition space um, in another neighbourhood um, which is in southwest Sydney as well but in uh, the place called Castula Powerhouse there used to be this Vietnamese curator Gung, and he um, he he left the sector ages ago he lives in Vietnam again but he did do a couple of Vietnamese exhibitions in the 2000s and I did go to them when I was young in my twenties. Um, and so I, I tried to acknowledge that as well in the, in the space. So yeah, I guess there was a lot of stuff I wanted to do in this small exhibition. It wasn't just about showcasing, showcasing writers and artists, um, but it was also about acknowledging the history that's come before us. Um, and that also reflects in um, the artworks that it's displayed because there's actually like one artwork, which is actually from an artist who's not from this area, but from Melbourne. But it's about the boat journey, um, and his work does feature oral histories with like me and a few other people over the last ten years. Um, and so, yeah, the, okay, sorry, it's a long, complicated answer. But basically, there are a lot of considerations, and I I knew that I had to try and, and hit as many of those considerations as possible, even if it's not possible to include every single aspect of the you know diasporic experience. Um, but I wanted you know the Viet experience to be pretty well represented by an exhibition like this.
0: Now. When you curate in your mind, do you write down the criteria or is it gut?
1: It's all gut, you know, like, um, you know, I'm sure you understand this too. It's, it's sort of hard to replicate exactly like the process. Like, I I mean, I, I, I do want to train people and I'm always trying to encourage other people to do this kind of work. Right. But I mean, all I can say is that it's over like years and years of just thinking about this stuff, obsessing about it, it becomes very instinctual. And so like, you know, so, you know, for example, now I can just do a tour of the, and of the exhibition space. And you know what? I didn't even know half of what the artists would be coming up with because some of the works were brand new, literally down to the wire. People didn't finish the work until like the day before.
0: Like high school.
1: Yeah, yeah. But it was like, but I knew like you just have to trust the process a little bit too, right? And, you know, and I'm not saying it's going to be like a perfect exhibition, but I kind of knew that my instinct was, you know, I wanted that artist because I knew that they use humour in their work. I wanted that artist um, because, you know, they are looking at, you know Chinese, vietnamese artifacts um so there's two artists that have a dom song drum and then they respond to it too so that goes back thousands of years and so yeah but it's something about i mean one thing i'm actually not a control freak either i guess is the other thing i'm kind of happy to just you know there's a bit of chaos in all these things but you, but you do have to set it up it doesn't happen naturally you got to like you know choose the people that you put them in position basically and then from there you just have to trust the process so, yeah, and there's nothing written down. I'm not like sitting there with a mental check. Like, I do have a mental checklist, but I don't have a written one where I'm going, I need this, this, and this. I just yeah. have to guess um, that older artists, younger artists, I said there's like, about four or five now with Chinese backgrounds too, but who are, you know, Vietnamese um, diaspora as well. And so, yeah, all of those things I did think about. So, everything's deliberate, though. I wouldn't say that I, you know, there's every, every bit of that puzzle is there because, you know, I, I had a hand in it, but I didn't necessarily choose exactly what that would look like.
0: And that's part of the beauty of it. And uh, I want to go back to the artist that you had mentioned about the boat. Uh, What's his name? Fungo. Fungo. So I was reading his, and I think he was doing two things, right? He was eating, like, for 10 days, he's going to eat what his parents had on the journey. And he also, at the end of the exhibition, I think he's making origami to burn all the little boats that he's doing, right?
1: Yeah, actually, I should explain. So, no, um, he's not, he's gonna not do the same thing this time, but that, that's what he did a couple of years ago. So, oh, actually, got it. He, yeah, yeah. So, he was in a major um, uh, art institution here in Australia, which is the Museum of Contemporary Art, which is here in Sydney. So, he's normally based in Melbourne, but he flew up and then for ten days he lived in the gallery and literally just ate rations, like you know, replicating the boat journey in that way, right? Honoring what his parents went through, what a lot of our parents went through. And then at the end of it, and I was there for the end of it, he basically had this beautiful kind of um, set up at the front of the museum. And all these people gathered around and he burnt the boats to kind of honor the lives of the dead. And so he's done this a few times um, now, but th- that was the last time was a couple of years ago. And, you know, and he's become a friend because I've known him now for also like, you know, a good 10 years since I first met him, he interviewed me for this project. Um, and that's how we, we initially connected. Um, but I really wanted to bring that in because it's interesting because the boat journey, you know, there's a lot of pushback sometimes from the second gen in a way about how come, and it's true too, that how come that's the only story that people know about the Vietnamese, like in Australia, like everyone just thinks of it as like boat people or like drug dealers, you know, <laughs> like basically those are the stories. But but having said that, and I have to say, as I get older, I don't know about your thoughts about this, but the more and more I think about that boat journey, the more harrowing it seems like, it just seems like, what the hell? I think I would have been one of those people who just stayed behind because I'm like, why would I go in a boat and risk my life? And, you know, a lot of people died, you know, like hundreds of thousands just went missing for lots of reasons, pirates, drownings, you know, whatever. And so I I did want to have one work in the exhibition which honours that. You know, and Fuung understands this. That's why he did the work. He understands the importance of that story. And it, it, interesting, in the work, it's more about um, if you put the headphones on and then you... um. Old boats um, while you're listening, a lot of it's more like the second gens reflecting on what we know of this history. Um, and so, yeah, And so then when I listened to it, even, and I hadn't heard myself in like years, but I listened to myself and it was really weird listening to myself at 32 talking about what I understood of my parents' boat journey. And I don't know, these days, I think I would talk about it a bit differently. Maybe I have kids now. I understand these things differently, but 10 years ago, um, yeah, I, I had another way of understanding that. And I think the story keeps evolving, even though it's like an old story like i said now i just think of it i just get more even more freaked out thinking about that story it just seems so freaky don't you think like it's that people it, from vietnam gotten boats and just left
0: it really is and you get sick of hearing about the war but then you think about it you really think about it you're like wait a minute from north to south it was in tatters like bombed out and constantly bullets flying i mean you look at like pictures of and images of ukraine today and you're just like wait that that was us 50 years ago and, you know, it's one of those things where we can't stop thinking. You, you can't stop thinking about it. But at some point, like, I need to take a break from the imagery and, and, and the stories and thinking about the boats and the water and the ocean. But when I read uh min the, the, uh, the pamphlet, that the PDF that you sent me, it resonated. And, you know, the way he did it. And I was like, that's the beauty of art and artists. Where they can kind of like reimagine things and you know uh, put things into our n- minds and and make us think and and imagine um, and recreate things that uh, that you know we 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 think about we hear we're, we're bored of it but contextually when they reframe things it really hits and I and I that, you know that's why I like talking about this stuff but you're right it's like second generation when I hear about boat people we're just Sometimes it's exhausting.
1: It is exhausting. And same with the war. I mean, so interestingly, so one of the things I'm doing as part of this exhibition is there's a series of public programs, which means like, you know, talks and that around the exhibition. And the one I just had on Sunday was amazing. It was actually held at the library. So not at the museum. So in Cabramatta, so not far from where the museum is. So I don't know if maybe you've heard about Cabramatta. It's like the heartland of, you know, Vietnamese Australia. Um, And it the, the, so the talk that I brought together, it was Ji, where my like Like, um, where my Andre Dow, who's written, she'd just written a book as well. And Tracy Ling, um, he also just wrote a book set in Cabramatta and she lives in the US. And um, and there was a question at the end. It was such an interesting talk because the, the authors were brilliant, all of them, you know, it was such an insightful discussion. Um, and, and I chaired the discussion. But at the end, one of the questions from the audience was this young woman got up, probably in her 20s, and she said, You know, don't you worry, as you're addressing to the writers, don't you worry that by focusing on the war, you're just perpetuating this um, narrative that Vietnam is this war-torn country. You know, know, what about it as a country aside from that? I mean, something like that. I mean, an interesting question, but I mean, the thing is, like, we are the diaspora. So our lives are basically founded on the fact that our parents left because of the war. So it's not really up to us, I think. And I didn't. And at that point, you know, do wear my, and although they were answered, so I didn't get to, you know, answer. But I'm going to answer now. But, but I think though that that's the job of the Vietnamese in Vietnam now, really, to tell the story of contemporary Vietnam. And the, the the I don't think that that's my place, really, to talk about Vietnam is like now. I can sometimes I touch it on my writing a little bit, but I'm a, I'm a foreigner there. Like I don't I don't come from there anymore. I don't know what Vietnam is like. You know, to talk and in, in the depth that I can talk about the experience of us here.
0: Wow, that's a very cool sort of setup that you went through to hear that question from a young woman. And I think, why don't we have agency to answer however we want? I mean, right, if you think about it, like, I go back to Vietnam twice a year, I, I can answer that from my experience of being in Vietnam, and I do all the time. But I also reserve the right to talk about the war, or the experience of my family coming from the war, as much as I want, and I, you know, I don't, I, I want to know what Chiquema and Tracy and Andre, how, how did they answer?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think, yeah, I don't know if I can summarize, and I, unfortunately, I didn't record this talk, which was amazing. But um, I mean, Tracy did basically acknowledge, well, that's the truth of like how the community started in yeah. in, in Australia was the war. Um, but you're right. I think maybe, but I thought the question was provocative. Like, I mean, I, I felt like I really wanted to answer it, you know. But I, like, yeah, um, right at the end of the. The talk, but I think it's a good question, though. I mean, I, I wanna, I wanna say respect to that girl for asking that question. It's a good question, um, even though I might disagree with that in a way, like you too, because. But I also like, you know, I went to Vietnam for a month, um, you know, the start of the year too with my kids. You know, I, I'm also getting to know Vietnam as a, you know, living, breathing place. But the war is still part of it too. I want to say, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I, and I did mention it in the talk at some other point. Where the thing I found about Vietnam, and you, know, you maybe have this experience, is it's true. A lot of people don't want to talk about the war, especially young people. They're not that interested. But you know what? I do meet people who do want to talk about the war as well, older people who remember, who lived through it. And then they're always interested in, like, the Viet Girl, like, who come back. um, And then, you know, I had a couple of really interesting chats with people who remember the war, like, or veterans who, you know, from the South, for example, they didn't leave. They didn't, they didn't, being, they didn't leave the country and they're still there. And then they don't get the chances to talk about it much because who are they going to talk to about it? So then I, so then I think that's, I mean, that's life, right? Very complicated, but all these things are true. That one, Yes, it's a place that a lot of people, it's moved on in some ways, you know, people don't want to talk about it, the younger generation don't remember it, but I guess I would always argue that war does matter in every society, you know, like it's it's not maybe, we don't want to glorify it, we don't want to like re-traumatize ourselves constantly, but as just a simple truth of life. There was a war, it was very painful, it caused a lot of death, and that's why I'm really grateful to these writers and artists, and you know, do you wear my, her book, the new book, Dust Child? He talks about this other legacy of the war, which is all the mixed race kids, you know, from the American soldiers. That's still going on. Like whether people like it or not, these people live with the consequences of a war that began, you know, 40, 50 years ago or more. Um, And even Andre Dow, his book is all about, you know, and he's one I really related to in a different way because his grandfather was a prisoner, um, a political prisoner in Vietnam for 10 years. And so then as a grandson growing up in Australia, he tries to make sense of that. Like, what does that mean? and so maybe like, you know, but when I read it, I understood the heaviness of that question, you know, like some of us, maybe not all, I, I want to say not all of it's our age, maybe think about right. this stuff too much, right. right? But then You're the right. ones who do, we're the ones who end up working as storytellers, as writers, as, you know, hosting podcasts, making programs, running exhibitions, because we want, we, we believe it's important to reflect on these kinds of stories. Um, that yeah, and,
0: and I would take it a, another step. Further, which is what about the Jewish community in the Holocaust? You know, are they they're not perpetuating Holocaust uh, stories? They're really letting the world know, like, hey, let's not do this again. That was a bad idea. And I think for us, war is a bad idea. It's no matter how you look at it, it's a bad idea. However, we are product, we are a byproduct of that war, and it's hard to divorce our genetics, our living molecular kind of experience, how we can, how can we divorce who we are from that experience? She might just be bored of it. And she's like, let's move on. I mean, I think that's more of it, which I think if my daughter, my son ever said that to me, I would relate to it. I would understand it. Like, hey, daddy, you're always talking about the warriors. Okay. I get that. But I think if you are going to say, well, if we keep talking about it, it's perpetuating. I don't know. I don't agree with that
1: yeah but, and it's interesting, yes and just to um, say but it's interesting because i actually did bring up the jewish thing myself in the talk because i think about the, the jews and you know like they're like diaspora like the, the first diaspora right in some ways yep. you know we're, less, we're just like following in their footsteps i mean the vietnamese diaspora just started much later in, in history right like we're recent you know 20th century product but um but but the thing about the jews which i find so interesting is they have a way of like, learning to mem- memorialize their own kind of suffering Absolutely. and they have the days to honor. and yeah, you know, and so then I think there's something important in that because, you know, and another thing we talked about, which, you know, and G. Womai and Andre both had really interesting answers because we, the idea of silence around this sort of stuff. So, Andre, in, in his book, he talks a lot about this, but in the end, the silence, he, he thinks that in some ways, um, his kind of understanding is that our parents, some of our parents who didn't talk about these things, our grandparents, the silence was to help the next generation have a chance and not be burdened by the sorrow. Um, but then on the other hand, like the way Maya was saying, but the thing is, like, it's, it is important to talk about these things because then we can communalize our traumas. Yeah. this expression she used. And so, but I think both things are kind of true. It's like, and I, and, and you know, this having kids, I do, there's a fine line between I don't want to burden my children with all the like the, the crap that I inherited, you know, like all that stuff. But at the same time, I do want them to know the truth because it's important that they understand this is their legacy. This is why we're here in Australia. Um, because of, there was this painful experience in our family's history, you know, and it's and it caused a lot of, you know, it's, and it will continue to cause a lot of intergenerational trauma, you know, because like you said, we've kind of inherited this stuff now, right? It's in our, it's basically in our DNA, um, and I do, you know, and, I, and I'm trying my best to like, you know, change the course of my own parenting journey and not perpetuate the stuff for my family, right? But even so, it's still there. I can't avoid it all because I wouldn't be the person I am if I didn't kind of go through all the stuff with a, you know, in a Vietnamese refugee family. And and in a way, I kind of, I, I guess I would say I'm grateful for it. Really, like, what can I? What else can I say? I I, I didn't want to suffer, um, like a lot of people don't. But then it makes you who you are. And then from that, you yeah. can find the beauty. Um, and you know, and maybe if, if I had had a different kind of family life, I just would become a very different person now.
0: Yeah, and I want to go back to what you said about being storytellers uh we are interested in this uh because we tell stories and i would even go back to my mom and dad i really wish that they actually talked more about it it wasn't that they were afraid of us not uh being normal or they wanted to burden with us they, they didn't care about any of that my parents were just you know the happy-go-lucky people i think that they were just lazy to talk about the the experience they didn't think it was a big deal perhaps but i wish they would have sat me down and said you know let's spend a week or let's spend two days a year and memorialize the things that we went through and share with you. And perhaps you can write this down and know about, you know, what, what it felt like. Um, I had an uncle who was in the Phoenix program. I think he came to Quantico, Virginia to train under the CIA twice. I would love to have, he died before I started the podcast. I wish I had more time with that man, my dad's older brother to hear about what his experience in the war was like, you know, and I, I I find it fascinating. Just me personally. I, I, I like that. I like to hear it and I can understand if it was my daughter or some young woman in her twenties and she's like, Oh my God, this again. And I I can understand it, but I would probably sit my daughter down and say, no, no, no. Like this is why it's important. Um, And then make parallels to what the Jewish diaspora goes through.
1: Yeah, and yeah, and think about the Jewish thing and talking about with you. I mean, that, that's, and I think, I don't know if you talked about this last time, we might have even touched on it last time, even, but I think this is where like the Jews have this advantage in terms of like them, they're, they're like an ethno religion, right? And so then they can kind of put into their rituals. And I think this is where we're much more fragmented, the Vietz, like, because, you know, obviously, you know, and even like you know, even if you're Catholic or Buddhist, and I mean, there are rituals that you know, but it's not so explicitly about telling stories, you know. It's about honoring the ancestors and honoring the dead in that way, and so there is a me- there is a memory there, but it's not so much like this. Yeah, we don't communalize the trauma enough to use Meyer's expression, um, which I think that's where like it would be good to hear those stories in that way. Um, I, I mean, I grew up with a dad though he talked a lot about this stuff, but in a way which I think I wasn't protected from the horrors of the war and- enough probably. Um, but maybe, so in that way, I actually don't want to necessarily talk to my dad about it anymore. I felt like I've heard a lot of his version of the war. Um- but it is, yeah, but, it, but then I feel conflicted because uh, there are things I'd like to know more about. But you know what I do these days is I get my husband to ask him because I feel like then it's easier from man to man, you know. And my husband, you know, he's a white Australian, yeah. he's a bit outside of experience, and my dad loves him like a son anyway. And, and, you know, and there is this kind of sexist thing in my family around girls and boys and all this sort of stuff. But it's easier that I just say to Josh, hey, can you ask, you know, I'll, I'll say to him, can you ask my dad about blah, blah? Because sometimes mm. it's just easier And wow. then like if I want some details because, I, I do, I mean honestly, I'm not, I'm I mean I see my dad like five times a week. I see him all the time. But then reopening these wounds can be a bit risky, I find, in, in my family's case, because my parents have, you know, for the most part, mostly healed, although not so healed that they've never gone back to Vietnam, for example. And, you know, and, and increasingly I feel like my family one of those few families left where my parents just left more than forty years ago and then they just never returned. And so I but I have to keep going for my sake. So, you know, yeah. I I, I want to return. I wanna have a relationship to Vietnam. I want my kids to have a relationship, but my parents they they left it behind them in 1980 and they've just never come back.
0: One of the things I think about for the topics in the Vietnamese podcast, or when I sit down with people like you, um, really curators of culture, I think about the future of Vietnamese youth. And I think about what the third, fourth generation would turn out to be like. Are they just going to be simple Australians, simple Americans, or are they going to have this layer of identity that, They can reach back into and draw from sort of like the japanese community i don't know what the japanese community in australia is like but many of the japanese in america still practice many of the the traditions that their parents have left whether it's uh kenpo or whether it's going to um to learn uh calligraphy or they go to japanese class you know and That kind of like remembrance, that memory of your your traditional, your background, even though you're fourth, fifth generation Japanese now, is a beautiful thing. But I wonder if the Vietnamese are going to hold on to certain aspects of of their pride.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's something I think about a lot, obviously. It's one of my favorite (laughs) concerns as well. But I mean, my impression is that I think where we integrate too well, that we're sort of losing some of that identity. Um, language gets dropped very quickly. Other p- aspects of culture, like, you know, the Vietnamese, uh, after the rocky initial start in Australia, I don't know, I guess it's probably similar to America. I just think, like, the Vietnamese have really flourished, like, have done really well. But that's come at a cost as well, like, that there is a kind of distance from our roots, I think. Um, Big time. You know. And so, yeah, so that's the trade-off, you know, like, and that's, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the double edged sword of like, you know, migrating, right? Like you have that experience of like uh, having a chance, you know, and, you know, and, and these days I know a lot of vets now, younger vets who actually uh, who grew up in Vietnam and then they've come here as adult migrants. You know, they've come, they go to the US, they go to Australia, you know, they came as international students and then they've stayed. And I think it's really interesting kind of talking to some of them too, because, you know, one of them, for example, this young young man um, I've become friends with, and he just says, you know he knew that the education in vietnam was not good compared to what he could get overseas and so that's so he's happy living here there's more freedom there's you know clean water (laughs) fresh air all of that stuff as well um but you do lose something very precious too and i think people do feel that you miss you you lose a homeland in the same way like we're trying our best to recreate something here right and luckily there are like you know areas like Cabramatta and and i live near bangstown which is not far away and this is areas of vietnamese life but i do feel like you know I'm, I'm on the edges of that a little bit because i also chose a path where you know i got deeper into writing and media and all these things which are very atypical vietnamese kind of you know even set for second gens like very few of us work in these areas um and so yeah but I, but then but even aside from that i meet vets all the time my age you're probably more typical like doctors and accountants and lawyers and that and they also i think um are losing touch with their roots a little bit too but i mean how could you maintain it but you know if, if, by being like a professional as well as staying true to home. like that's that's really hard kind of balance, I think.
0: But there's also this sort of like people who grew up in Vietnam aren't even thinking about, oh, we're culturally Vietnamese. They're just whoever they are, right? They're not really out to explore any deeper, you know, there's computer programmers, there's people who are working in food. And it's not like some cultural hunt that we are kind of doing and we're trying to kind of almost create meaning out of this existence of being like in this weird foreign western world and we're trying to like build it but when I go back to Vietnam and it just eases we just I just ease back into the culture and I'm not thinking about it anymore
1: oh i mean totally i mean and that's that's the that's the dilemma of being in the diaspora right as opposed to being kind of in the homeland um but i want to say though that's not completely true either i think from what i've seen is that you know there are Viets in vietnam who also look into the past who also interested in like um or something you know they want to know what the Mm. history was like before colonization that um you know there's that movement now of wearing old older dress like vietnamese style clothing from previous centuries and so that's like a kind of thing i see in vietnam too which is interesting like people there are thoughtful young people there, and artists and that are living there who are very interested in the past and so like for example um at the start of the year, I interviewed an artist in Hanoi, um in Thailand, and um he's such an interesting young guy like in he's in his twenties, really gifted artist, and he looks at, and he's very interested in like those traditional um art forms like nom ho, paintings and that, and then it influences his contemporary style too. And so people are thinking about tradition and what does it mean to be Vietnamese? But then again, but just like here, they're the minority, I guess. They're those artists and writers, you know what I mean? They're thinking about this, but there is a question in Vietnam too, because, you know, the thing about going to go to Vietnam, it's like going to a lot of Asian cities, it just becomes like a, you know, homogenous kind of contemporary, you know, I don't know, Asian mega city. Like that's what Saigon feels like. Right. Except for the fact that there's food, which is different, obviously. And then language. That's that's at the bedrock of the kind of culture, which kind of makes that you know continuity possible. But like I said, but even the language thing is interesting because you know like um, the the writing we use of Vietnamese now, it's pretty new. Like and and we've lost because what happened was when they changed the writing system, Vietnamese lost touch with their own history. We di- we can't read old scripts now. So when you look at you know writing from the eighteen hundreds and whatever you know seventeen hundreds, we we don't really have that connection in the same way, um, even though. Because like ninety nine percent of people can't read that writing, so I don't know. I mean, I I agree with you that that we're we obsessed about these things in a different way. But I think in Vietnam these are real questions for Vietnam too. And you know, Vietnam always is always on the edge of being swallowed again by China. So I think that's what gives them a bit of anxiety. You know, and because there's historical precedent, Vietnam is a, is a tiny state in like you know right next to a very powerful neighbor. And you know, we were colonized by them before. Why wouldn't we be colonized by them again yeah. one day?
0: My my mom and I were walking. Uh, in the street the other day and she said something about you should be I don't know why Vietnamese people are not even thankful for to Alexander Darad who changed our alphabet who Romanized our alphabet I go mom we are the only Asian country with a Romanized alphabet how much history do you think was erased in that process that's what you just brought up Sheila and and she thought about it she had nothing to reply I was like you want me to thank Colonists, the colonialists that wiped out the way we live, the way we breathe, the way we eat, the way we think, and they gave us, they gave us, they gifted us this way of 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 communicating with the outside world because it it served their economical purposes at the time, and we're the only country in the entire region with Roman. I mean, what does that even say about the Vietnamese journey, right? That it's somebody... Yeah,
1: because yeah, cause my I also grew up, my dad was always going always going on about Alexander like, and I mean, look, I mean, obviously for some of us, I mean, now having Romanized character names and stuff, it makes it a lot. I mean, I think this is part of the, the story of why the Viet Diaspora has integrated more easily as well. You know, we have less foreign sounding, like, you know, alphabet and all that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you go to a restaurant and people can read like, you know, pho or whatever. Um, but you're right. I mean, I mean, this is what I think. Like, it, it comes at a cost. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, to be like to be fair i guess before that like, we had chinese characters right but then the vietnamese were developing our own writing system based on that um hang like, it. The, yeah that, yeah exactly it was then hang, and then the distinct norm as well and so we were developing our own style but then that got interrupted by the missionaries um and so you know yeah i don't know i mean
0: it's complicated it
1: is complicated, it's complicated. and even like you know your catholic background right and i'm technically catholic as well yeah. you know and buddhist and and but then all these things are introductions. Like Buddhism was an introduction too. Like what is actually Vietnamese? I don't know. I think the Vietnamese identity. I guess my own conclusion is something like we are originally like we are like kind of like these true cosmopolitan people. Like we have we've absorbed so many different influences. The history is so kind of you know fragmented, but somehow we've sort of made it our own. Um, and that's why the Vietnamese, in, in that way, compared to some of the other kind of neighboring cultures, we we are kind of adaptable in a way. I think. Um, I mean, actually, people have the same argument about the Filipinos, right? Like that's Yeah, why I was just thinking Vietnamese, about that. Yeah, they come to America, come to Australia and suddenly they're just like in. They're just there. And the Vietnamese in a, in another way, we're not that different either. I think um, we're, we're kind of a bit less kind of foreign in that sense. Like, yeah, I, I think about, you know, I went to Catholic school and suddenly you're just there, you're all Catholics and, you know, in Australia. And then you, there's an easy entry point because of religion. Um, yeah, it's not the same for people who are Buddhist, of course, but I think in the refugee waves, Catholics were overrepresented. Um, so that's why a lot of us do, do identify as Catholic.
0: But in 200 years when YouTube and 3D holograms, when we can walk into each other's rooms and cross countries and just digitize our reality and be everywhere all at once, and all the cultures are integrating, and there's just one flat culture, one... You know, nobody's wearing anything culturally from anywhere specific is also a very sad and boring place. But maybe at that point we're worrying about survival rather than these colors and affects of, of, of our each of our where we come from.
1: Yeah, I know. And um, but that's the world we're going to now, right? That's when you go to yeah. like a shopping mall in Asia, it's pretty much the same shopping mall in every country every in country. Asia you know, same brands, even in Australia too, like it's like Zara, Uniqlo, all of this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, we're already kind of here at that point, right? Set, but So we are starting to lose some of that, you know, precious kind of difference. I don't know, and I, I and I think that is sad, personally, as someone who loves culture. I think what makes us, you know, what's so interesting is those differences rather than being all the same because I don't know, but I, I don't want to, you know, be one of those people who defends, like, culture to the death, like, because obviously we do have more pressing challenges and I do think about this, like, you know so even though i'm you know being concerned with doing this vietnamese exhibition um you know and also like you know i really want to tease out like you know the vietnamese chinese experience and you know looking at some of these different ex- ex- you know aspects but then i'm also kind of at the moment also helping out with this you know local campaign to try and get tre- more trees planted because that's a crisis as well right in Huge. fact that's like even i mean there are different kinds of big. crises you know yeah. yeah but i mean literally that's what i was working on the moment um on the weekend after I finished the talk, and then I was kind of thinking about okay, this tree campaign, we got to get something in the store and in, in the local paper about it, you know, got to get together with other residents. Mostly, I think I'm the only Vietnamese person actually that, in this particular campaign, but it matters, right? My children's future, our future is at stake because we need more trees <laughs> planted. And in this neighborhood, this is the one thing, a bad thing about living in a migrant neighborhood. We have the worst local council in this way, I feel, or one of the worst ones, but because, you know, like a lot of migrants are just in survival mode, right? Yeah. Um, it's really the next generation that then starts maybe caring a bit more about, you know, planting trees or something. But then the people who rule us, like in the council, they totally take us for granted. They take this neighborhood for granted. Um, and so then I do feel this responsibility sometimes. I think I mentioned this to you last time in the podcast. I'm thinking maybe I should run for like local council just, one day.
0: I was just thinking about that. Why not?
1: You know, and there's no Vietnamese. And, yeah, and in, in the area I live, it's a huge Vietnamese population. And there are no, actually. sorry, there is now one Vietnamese Councillor Jessing Wing. So she's a young woman who's on council now. Before her, though, for twenty years, I think there was like not a single Vietnamese person. Basically, and and this is in Sydney. This is this particular area in Sydney. Then other the neighbouring area, there are Vietnamese councillors. But for some reason, this one there's just a gap, and I don't know why. Even though we have some a very large Vietnamese population here, um, somehow we just don't have like the local representation. Um and I think then, but then, I think the and, but to be fair, it's not just that the Vietnamese get ignored. I think we all get ignored all the all the migrant communities here, their concerns, you know, like it's just all about developers going in and building apartments, you know the local council, you know couldn't give a shit about the local community in some ways, I feel, so um, yeah, I, I mean, i don't i'm 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 sort of half joking about running for council. I'm not going to do it anytime soon, but I do think you know unless things improve, you know, I mean, I really care about you know trying to have some preservation of culture or at least continuity, not preservation. It's more about, I want some continuity there. But then I also think, yeah, but other things are important too, like, yeah, environmental concerns and that as well. Um, Yeah. So anyway, that's, so those are some of my preoccupations at the moment, even though I suppose when it comes down to when I have free time, which is, you know, (laughs) hard to come by, I basically do invest it, especially in thinking about Vietnamese stuff, because I do feel a special responsibility that, yeah, I mean, look, the tree stuff matters a lot, but then there are other people who care about that too but maybe not quite as many people care about this stuff around Vietnamese identity. Um, But I want to train up more people. I want more people to get involved because it can't just be up to, let's say you and me, Kenneth, we're like in our forties, right? Or something. I'm looking for people in their thirties and twenties. Who can do this sort of work too, to carry it on. Um, Because otherwise we wouldn't have been successful either. If we are the only ones who can do this work and then people after us, people feel intimidated or they don't get involved. And I think we've also not kind of done the right thing by handing it on.
0: You know, I was in a meeting last night to plan an event. I can't really talk about exactly what the event is, but it's sort of like what we're talking about right now. How do we get young people to the event and party? And for me, I'm a big party boy. I love to party. I love to get alcohol and I love to get hundreds (laughs) of people together and, 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 but there is a intention behind the gathering that sometimes I don't think enough about. And my thing is like, let's just get everybody in one room. And then the people who are really the culture um, disbursement teams can really hand down. But we, it's hard to make this stuff cool. And for me and my weird philosophy is just bring everybody together that look like each other that kind of can dress in our your eyes and bring everybody together and put on some like old Saigon rock music, a la Funktam, right? And that's what I did for that. And in that way, when we can make it cool and we can make it hip and fashionable and more interesting to the youth, then we have a chance, I think we have a shot. And it leads me to my next question is, How is min-min being uh, received in your community? Do the young kids feel like it's a cool thing? Are they even coming? How do you market to them? How do you make it interesting for the youth?
1: Oh, I mean, this is totally a key concern for me as well. And like I said, because I am really concerned about, you know, the next generations. Um, Let alone my daughters, you know, my daughter's like six. So I I can't even worry about her. I'm thinking about people just even in their 30s and 20s. Yeah, no, I so. So the, a big so one thing I bring into this space I think with the being you know curating this exhibition is because I don't come from like a um, a curation background you know I'm not I'm not so concerned about like you know how it's worked in other um, galleries and that my goal with this exhibition and I was and I was very clear from the outset that I want regular people to turn up to this exhibition yeah like that's why and, and I'm thinking about you know trying to engage the community. And honestly, it's been such a good reception so far. Like when they had the launch, um, which was the 29th of April, I thought about doing the 30th of April, but in the end it was the 29th of April. So the, the eve of the 30th, um, it was the biggest launch that they've ever had. We wow. had, um, you know, it's only a small space, but there was like a hundred and it was, and there was awful weather that day too, but we had like 120, 130 people turn up which is a lot, which is huge. Like their typical openings are very, very tiny. Um, And I mean, a lot of them were my contacts. I mean, I guess that reflects because I have so many contacts, I'm so well connected and people, you know, and I I am very gratified by this, but people do care about the things that I do. A lot of friends who are not Vietnamese turned up, you know, people who want to support me personally. But then I think people were touched by the exhibition. Um, And actually, and interestingly, I'm from about a couple of weeks before the exhibition. I don't know how they heard about it, but this young guy contacted me. His dad runs a Vietnamese YouTube channel. It's a very cute channel. Um, His dad's probably like, I don't know, maybe younger than my parents, probably like 60. And he he runs a local YouTube channel and they turn up to the launch um, opening. And you know what? Half people there had never come to the museum before ever, I think, at least half. It was their first time. Heaps of random vids, I'd never met them before. Um, They heard about it somehow. And so, yeah, even like that, um, you know, the the older Vietnamese guy with his young son filming for his YouTube channel, he interviewed me. And I'm I'm waiting for that that video to go up because, you know, and I apologise, you know, my Vietnamese is not the best for talking about art and complicated things. But, you know, I can talk well enough just everyday stuff. But he was just saying, as you know, as an older guy, he felt so gratified seeing someone younger do this work. You know, he felt really proud of that. And I I, I was really touched. I was like, yeah, I'm trying... you know honor your generation in some ways even though the, the exhibition is not really about focused on the older generation but in a way it is a it is a testament to them right like the fact that i still care about trying to talk about this is because i care about my heritage and you know the older generation sacrifices even though i think i'm trying to shift the story to our generation right um and then anyway but even i've just heard randomly from other younger people like i'm talking next week i'm having a coffee with these two young women who have a local podcast focused on asian australian identity one of them is vietnamese um they come from a different world too they're kind of more like i'm um, working in a- agencies i think they're more like kind of creatives that work in a corporate environment i don't know how they heard about it but they visited the exhibition read an instagram story i contacted them back and i was like hey thanks so much for coming do you want to have a chat you know they're like yeah yeah we'd love to give you some coverage So, you know, so young people are coming, um, I don't know, I don't know how they hear about it. They're bringing their families. And then I was really touched by that one because, you know, I don't know how this young woman is, but, you know, she's in her 20s, I would guess. And she was talking about how it was so amazing to be able to bring her parents and grandparents to an exhibition and for them to understand it as well. You know, maybe they don't understand everything, but they definitely get a sense of it, right? Because I have things there that would speak directly to them. Um, like there's also the other thing i haven't mentioned that's really fascinating is um so james gwing one of the artists he has like this incredible collection of vietnamese antiquities like these porcelain um and a porcelain, just like sorry ceramics and things like that and um yeah so we've displayed that in there as well i, will, I was really worried because this is not a high tech um, museum but we had we had an alarms installed and everything but this is our our heritage as well and so for everyone including older generations they may have never seen this this kind of stuff because in the museums here, we don't collect Vietnamese things. It's all Chinese, Japanese, Korean, you know, the kind of things that you're used to when you think about Asian art, but we haven't valued Vietnamese art in the same way. So um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really proud so far of like that young people are coming, older people are coming, people who've never come to, they don't think of that kind of museum as theirs. You know, we don't think of museums as being ours because yeah. especially the history of it, it is basically, it was set up by a group of, I think mostly white Australians who probably saw the area was changing and then they wanted to preserve their culture a little bit um so i but i want to honor that instinct as well because that's what happens right and that's why i'm thinking about this stuff because i can see that we're we're on the verge of losing a lot of this stuff unless we document it unless we do it so that's why um partnering with a you know a local institution has been wonderful actually like i you know, I, there is a lot of discussion in the arts too about, you know, white gatekeepers and white institutions. And it's totally correct that that is exactly what it's like. But I've also had a very positive experience of trying yeah. to work with people, people, because people in those institutions want to change things too. They don't always know how to, but there is a lot of goodwill there. And I've personally found it, you know, like, you know, sometimes it can be a bit challenging being like, you know, and and they, and they, and I know people see me as just like this kind of Asian Vietnamese woman, you know, they don't see me as like a fully, fleshed like a 360 degree you know person with a lot of skills sometimes they see me in a kind of slightly um yeah narrow way just based on my race but but having said that like overall i find the experience has been really positive of trying to get our stories into these big institutions as well like it still matters like and i and and even actually um, on friday last week gosh just has been a busy time um <laughs> so i had a i had a conversation with jiway mai and andre dao At the sydney writers festival so this is the major literary festival in town you know thousands and thousands of people come multi-million dollar festival these days and um and in the audience there's probably only maybe about 10 bits, maybe less and um but then i was talking to them afterwards you know and of course i pretty much talked to every single one of them afterwards because you know it was it was a good session oh my god they were both fantastic so easy to speak to it was so it was such a good talk as well even though it was different because the audience was not was not like the one in cabramatta the one in cabramatta more than half asian you know what i mean Whereas this one was mostly white people. But then well, one of the Viets pointed out to me afterwards, he, he goes, you know, it was actually kind of cool too that there was lots of non vets that people there were taking interest in our stories as well. And that matters as well. Like it's not just talking to ourselves, but I was able to, you know, facilitate this conversation with, you know, G-O-Mai and with Andre, where we're talking about like stories, which is at the heart of our concerns as the Vietnamese diaspora. And all these white people were there for it, listening intently as well. They They walked away, they learned something about us. And that's, that's beautiful too, right? Like that, um, yeah. even though it can be confronting when you look out and it's mostly like white people, but yeah. then I, I also, I, I want to say that that was a great thing as well to have both kinds of audiences.
0: Sheila, thank you so much. Um, I enjoy the first time we talked I enjoyed today and I look forward to years to come because it's always fun to hear what's going on in Australia and Sydney and your corner of the world.
1: No, thank you so much. It's so good to chat to you because I know you, I know you get it. I know, and I and I follow your activities, and I follow everything that's happening in California really closely because I can see that in, we're living in parallel worlds, right? That these concerns are we the are. same in both of our contexts. You know, we're all tied together as well. We're part of the dias- global diaspora, right? Um, but yet we also face some similar challenges of trying to, yeah, promote our stories and hang on to certain things and you know change other things as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, thank you so one, much for one me last.
0: One last time, where can we find more information on men? Uh Where is it and when does it go till?
1: Okay, so um, so this is Men. Um, I'm sorry, here you go. <laughs> 29th of April to the 14th of October. So it's on for ages. That's on for six months. I'm also going to have a few public programs. It's at the Fairfield City Museum and Gallery, which is in Smithfield. Um, so not far from, you know, where Cabramatta is and the other Viet areas. Um, and yeah, like it's um, going to be, you know, uh, a really good couple of months still because I've still got, you know, I'm, I'm doing a talk next month. I think I will focus on mental health and art. So I think that's a really good topic for us. And then we'll have a family open day as well. So come check out the exhibition. Um, you know, get in touch anytime if anyone's interested in, you know, talking about this. I'm always here for um, yeah discussion.
0: Thanks again, Sheila. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen tina fam sydney jamie and crystal Trin. please find us on instagram facebook and tiktok at the vietnamese podcast